0: Hey, so uh, just to give those of you that are maybe here for the very first time, but I'm not seeing any faces here. Is there anyone who's here for the very first time this morning? Yes, sir. Thank you. Let's, let, let's just welcome him. Sir. Okay, awesome. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Like, <laughs> I, I miss that. Well, you're very welcome. So for you, I'm quickly going to give you just a bit of uh, background knowledge about what we've been doing here in the last couple of weeks. We are in a series entitled... Spiritual warfare, the battle for your soul and for your mind. And what we look at, uh, looked at in the first two sermons by Glenn, we looked specifically at the devil. And just before I forget, let me just put my timer on here um, so that the devil does not tempt me to go over my timer. Uh, we looked at the devil and uh, the specific strategies that he employs to tempt us and to deceive us. And we had said this, the, the premise for this series, if I can put it up there, uh, where is my, is Andrew there? Okay, the first slide there, Andrew. All right, we, the premise for this series is that there is our art, arch enemy, the devil, um, and he is a very real being. He is very clever, he's very deceiving, he takes the truth and he twists it to sound like, hey, this is actually... This is the truth. It's it's not about what God says. And so what he does is, and what he likes to do is to try and isolate us, tries to isolate us and to implant into our minds, deceptive ideas. And those ideas, of course, play into the disordered desires of our heart. The disordered desires of our heart. Uh, That is speaking about our sinful nature. Even as a Christian, yes, yes. When you come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, there is this battle that we have still with the flesh, with the sinful nature. We have been set free. You have been saved from sin, the power of sin, and, or the, the penalty of sin rather. That happens as justification. But then there's this sanctification process of being set free from the power of sin and the pleasure of sin. Many times we don't talk about that in in the church, but there is a pleasure that comes for people through sinning, okay? But it enslaves them. So that's part of that disordered desires, and that's what I was talking about last week, the first one, the flesh, what that really is and, and, and what true freedom is. And then, of course, the third way in which this all ties together through Satan's plan is then through the world. So these ideas play into our disordered desires, and why they play into our disordered desires is that it is normalized in our culture and in the world. And so Glenn is going to talk about the world next week and the, or for the next two Sundays. And we said in last week's sermon that true freedom in Christ is actually not doing about what you want to do. There's this idea of freedom means that there's no boundaries. I shouldn't be... Uh, I shouldn't be in a framework. There shouldn't be any limitations to what I can do and what I want to live my life like. And John Mark Comer puts it in his book, Live No Lies, in this way. He says, true freedom is actually to give yourself over to the relational constraints of love. It's actually to give yourself over to the relational constraints of love. And he he makes note of this fact that in our culture today, any kind of relationship that is determined or is dependent on long-term fidelity is in the decline. It's in the decline. But in actual fact, when we do go and look at those kind of relationships and, and bind ourselves to these relational constraints of love we will find true freedom. And and hence why I tried to drive away one point last week that we have been set free to love and be loved. Now, today we're going to carry on with that same theme. We're going to carry on with this theme of that we have been given liberty by the Spirit to love God first and to love people, but within the boundaries of, of what God has given us as His people. And if true freedom... Is binding ourselves to those relational constraints of love. I want to submit to us that that is actually then true love. That is what true love is. And that is what all of us are after. We are after true love. We're seeking true love. And so, in order for us to then answer the question of okay, we know that we've been set free to love and be loved, and that's the definition of true freedom. But how do I then get free? How do I then experience and live in this true love and true freedom that Christ has for us? So I'm going to drive one point today, and it looks like this. That true love is about giving, not taking, thus leading to true freedom. True love is about giving. And not taking, thus leading to true freedom. And our main passage we're going to look at again today is out of Galatians 5. We're going to review and just read through verses 13 to 18 again. That was the passage from last week. And then we're going to add the rest of the text there that Paul adds to that passage. And we're going to try and answer this question. Remember this question, how do I find True love. And at the end, I'm hoping to give us two practical tools or spiritual disciplines that should really be a part of our lives as Christians in order to really experience God's true freedom for us in our lives. And once again, this ties in with sanctification. This is not about salvation. This is about sanctification, being made holy into His likeness. So please uh, turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. And I'm going to read for us. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the whole church in Galatia, which is modern day Turkey. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's God's word. Let us just pray and ask for his wisdom. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, thank you uh, that it is a double-edged sword, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we come and ask by your spirit Come and let your sword, your word of truth, do its work in us this morning. I pray, Father, come and empower me to only speak what what you want me to say. I pray for your wisdom now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was listening to uh, a sermon series by a pastor, one of my favorite pastors that I'm listening to, from a church in New York. It's called Church in the City. The pastor's name is John Tyson, and uh, I'm currently listening to a series that is about uh, converting the church, calling the church back to its roots, being rooted in love, but rooted in the Word of God. And he used an illustration that I'm kind of like, I, I like that illustration, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to borrow it, borrow that for this morning. And uh, it is about an event that happened... February 9, 2009. It's an event that changed the world forever. The world has never been the same after that event took place, and it will never be the same again. Is there anyone who who remembers that exact day, February 9, 2009? Anyone? Who's maybe got a guess? Okay, (laughs) no one. You ready for it? It's the day on which Facebook introduced the like button to posts. You might laugh at that and you think that's not that big really, that's not a major event. But listen, on that day started a complete reorientation of society's psychological understanding of itself. Tyson states that with the like button came a social proof and a performative dynamic that entered into relationships. All relationships. All people. And that is fascinating. Research that were done on the effect of the like button on younger people says this. The impact of the like button can have tremendous personal impact. When young people receive less engagement on their posts, their mental health takes a blow and they become more emotionally distressed. And a study by the University of Texas found that young people with low self-worth are at even greater risk to suffer from mental health issues like depression. Because feedback from peers is important to how some youth view themselves. Now, of course, we're all familiar with that peer pressure, right? Now, I believe that this is not only true for young people, but this is true for all people. Feedback from our peers or our employers, our spouses, whoever it may be, is about what other people think of me. And it is important to us and it influences us in how we view ourselves and the decisions we make. And the fact of the matter is this, is that if the way you view yourself is dependent on the opinions of other people, for example, through social media, your thoughts on your actions will be towards gratifying the flesh. It will be towards gratifying the flesh, thus leading you to become a taker. And I'll explain that as we go forth. But if the way you view yourself is not dependent on people's view, but rather on God's view. So it's not about saying, well, I don't care what people think. I just know what I, what I know. No, it's about not valuing what people think or what you think. It's about what God's view is of you. Guess what? Your thoughts and your actions will be towards the spirit leading you to being a giver. And mainly the difference between those two ways of living is this. That if you live to perform according to man's standard, you're always working towards attaining approval. It's always for approval of someone else. It's always towards performance to get the approval and love. So you're taking love the whole time. It's about them becoming a taker. You need this affection. You need the attention. That's why you need to have so many likes to your posts or comments. But if you live to per, not to perform rather in order to gain God's approval. So you don't, you don't live to, to attain God's love or to receive his love. But rather you live from an identity as a son and a daughter of God as one that has already approved, you will be a giver because you have already received God's love. There's a difference, okay? There's a difference between performing to attain and receive God's love. That is works-driven. That is trying to do things so that God approves of me and loves me and says that you are my child, as opposed to you are a child and you are living from that place where He's already said Rudy, I like you. I love you. There's a big difference. To bring that like button back into it, then you do not live, listen very carefully, you do not live for a like on the posts of your life, but the posts of your life are because of you already being liked. You don't live To receive likes, but your life is as a result of being liked. Uh, If you don't know or remember anything from this sermon, just remember that, because I think that is a very powerful idea. But the big question still is, how do I get to that kind of freedom? How do I get uh, to that place where I'm not concerned about people's opinion or man's opinion of me and, and, and culture's view of me on whether or not I'm adhering to the cultural standards. How do I get to that place where I'm just concerned about God's view? Well, first and foremost, we see in Galatians 5 verse 13, Paul says this, it gives us a hint. You were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the, sorry, for the flesh, but through love. So it's this emphasis on love, through love, serve one another. It's interesting how Paul contrasts indulging in the flesh with loving and serving one another. And that is why in verse 17, we also see he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So here's the thing. The desires of the flesh do not gel with the desires of the spirit. Because the desires of the Spirit is all about love. It's all about love. And this love is not in the way that culture looks at love. Because you might sit here and, and use that um, term very flippantly. We say we love coffee, we love food, we love chocolates. But that is all about pleasure. That is the, the fact that I'm taking from that and I'm, I'm using it for my pleasure. And it's not about being pleasure, being bad. We have been created to have pleasure. God has created humans so that we can enjoy what he has given us, our bodies. He has given us eyes, ears. He's given us senses to have pleasure. That's not the issue. But the issue is when we misunderstand what true love is and we think love is only about pleasure. And so it's important for us to look at this word and understand in the biblical view, and in the New Testament specifically, there are three kinds of love. The first one is is filio. Filio love is a is an affectionate love. It's kind of like a brotherly love, an affection that we as a as a group of people have for one another. Cherish one another. Then you get eros love. Eros love. Is romantic love, but it is specifically within the boundaries that God has given within the marriage of one man and one woman, and then there is agape love, pathway is entering, rebuke, give Satan in Jesus' name. Okay, <laughs> I want to try and come and distract you. Darth Vader entering here. What, what kind of place is this? Okay. So filial love, Eros love, and the last one is Agape love. How many of you have heard of that? Agape, Agape love. So that's the Greek word for love in this context in verse 13. And it's important to note that Agape love is, is that love that in 1 Corinthians 13 It is love that is not bent on taking, but is about giving. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 13. This kind of love, agape love, is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape love is the hardest love to produce by itself. I would say it's impossible because it's an unconditional love. It's not about taking, it's not about receiving, but it's about giving. And so it's with this view of love in mind that Paul in his letter then moves towards then practically what it looks like to then actually have true love or not. To actually then be a giver or a taker. And so we're going to move into these next two sections or passages. And I think we many times read and I've, I've, you know, where there is such a focus, then, okay, these are all the wrong things and these are all the right things. And I want us to change our view a little bit this morning, more in the context of what does love, true love, look like and what does true love not look like? So let's look at verses 19 to 26, where we see this uh, distinction between the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And we live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, rather, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I don't know about you, but there are two different ways that I've, as I'd mentioned, experienced kind of like teachings on this. The one way is to focus predominantly on the fruits of the flesh and say, these are all the evil things of culture, these are all the wrong things, avoid them at all costs. In other words, don't smoke, don't drink. Don't go to dances, don't wear that clothing, don't watch movies. Evil, because the flesh is evil. It's kind of like a legalistic view, and in many Christian circles, unfortunately, that is how people are brought up. Now, there is some truth to it you have to use discernment. sermon. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, well, you might say you are free to do whatever you want. The question is, though, is everything helpful? Is it beneficial? And beneficial in regard to first your relationship with God, so a vertical relationship. And secondly, is it beneficial for your relationship with others, horizontal relationships? But I want to to suggest to you that that's, that's a wrong way of looking at it if I just go and focus on all of these lists of sins, which is not exhaustive. There's a whole bunch of other things as well that we can go and focus on. But if we just focus on these things, It becomes a works-driven theology. So your faith is about what I do not do. If someone asks you whether you're a Christian and you have a chance to give a testimony, yeah, 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 I don't do that. I don't smoke marijuana. (laughs) I'm a Christian. There's maybe, you know, truth to that. But what the other person hears is, well, to be a Christian is about all the things that I can't do. You guys understand what I mean? Does that make sense? Okay, just want to make sure. Okay, we're awake here. All right. So, that's the first thing that I want to say about this. We shouldn't look at it in that way. It's not about avoiding the bad things. It's kind of like how I... I'm, I'm not the greatest mountain biker, but i found that if I go on the trails, especially when I moved to Squamish, the trails are very technical. I wasn't used to riding on these technical trails, lots of rocks. And the more I was focused on a rock and not hitting that rock, guess what happened? I would hit the rock. And I found... The answer to that was, I just got to look straight ahead to where I want to go. And and man, then I just make it around the rocks. Okay? I'm not sure if that is something for mountain bikers that they can go, like, yeah, yeah, that's it. But that works for me. So that's the first thing I want to mention about that. Secondly, uh, you might find that, you know, this is what we get in our. Christian setups, you know, in our, in our Sunday school classrooms or maybe in our Christian schools, we put up the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, all of these things. And we memorize it and we're like, yeah, these are the fruits. And then we, we, we point children specifically towards, listen, this is what you need to do. But in actual fact, what we try and do then, and within ourselves is, we try and squeeze fruit out of ourselves and out of our children Without them having the source of the fruit, they don't have the root yet. So, you try and cultivate patience and peace and love and joy and all of these things. But the problem is when the suffering comes and when the issues arise sickness, death, or maybe little four year old and two year old toddlers that run around and drive you nuts in your home, and then you lose your patience. You've got to go and ask yourself, why is that? Why am I not rooted in the love that's supposed to produce these fruits? Because here's the thing. It's not about the fruit. It's not about the fruit. If you have the source, you will bear fruit. It will come. Listen to John 15 verse 45. Jesus says... Abide in me and I in you, and you will squeeze fruit out of your life. No. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, you can't squeeze it out by yourself. If you're not implanted and abiding in Jesus, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So I'm not even going to go and go through that list of sins. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. And I'm not going to go and focus on all of those good things and be like, okay, yes, here we go. Christians rock church go out, woo, go produce the fruit of the spirit. Bless, bless, bless and love people. No, get to the source, Jesus Christ, the source of the fruit, the true love. So why does Paul though, focus on this whole list of, of sins and all of the good fruits? Yes, of course he, he puts that in there for a reason. Well, This church, you've got to understand, in Galatia, is a Gentile church. So it's a church, and the church as a whole consists out of various different little churches that were planted and established, but they are mainly Gentile churches. They are people that come or came to faith in Jesus not out of their Jewish background, so they did not have that foundation of the Old Testament. How many of us in this room come from a Jewish background? Okay. One person, okay? But predominantly, we are Gentiles. We come outside of that covenant that God made with Israel. And even if you did come out of that covenant with Israel, the covenant was always based on faith and not on works, the Bible teaches. But the, the purpose of it is, is that culturally in Galatia, all of these things that are listed, that was evident. That was kind of like part of the Roman Empire, part of the Greek culture. Sexual immorality, anything goes. And Paul is trying to clearly say to them, he's drawing a sand in the line and he's saying, listen, this is church in Galatia, how you can know whether or not you are in true love or out of true love. This is how you can know whether you are a giver or a taker. This is the kingdom of the light versus the kingdom of the darkness. And this is what it means, as he says in verses 16 to 25, what it means to walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. So it says, a, a line in the sand for believers to say, hold on, okay, I've been set free from the law, set free from the penalty of sin, but there is this process of sanctification Of not indulging in the flesh. But living in the spirit. And what this means is not perfection. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. But it means something. It means that there's a a way in which Jesus wants me to be free. And to live in freedom and in true love. And so I want to end off today by giving us two practical spiritual disciplines. To look at. In order that we then. Walk in this freedom. Walk in true love. Firstly with Jesus. And then the fruit will come so that it is towards others. The first one, prayer and fasting. See that as one, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting were two of Jesus Christ's most powerful disciplines of his ministry and of his life so that he walked in step with the Spirit. Listen to this. It's it's significant to think that Jesus never had his disciples come to him to ask him, Hey, Jesus, show us how to do miracles. Show us how to drive out demons. They did see that, but they didn't come and ask him that. But what did they come to ask him? In Luke 11 verse 1, we see what they asked him. They said, it says in Luke 11, Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So there was something about Jesus' prayer life that these disciples saw and they were like, we want to know how you pray because we see that you have, you have power and access to a power That we do not have. And so we see that Jesus. Of course in his ministry and in his life fasted for 40 days. Was led by the spirit tempted by Satan but never sinned. And so he combined his prayer life also with that period of time that he was fasting. To prepare him for his ministry. And then we see this kind of like emphasis on fasting also play out in the early church. In Acts 13 and 14, it won't be up on screen, but we do see that the early church, the words that describe their, their lifestyle was that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on, on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off. So there was a culture of this is normal. Listen to this. Uh, John Mark Comer in his book again writes that no practice of Jesus is more alien or neglected in the modern Western church than fasting. In the post landscape, where human beings are viewed as being just thinking things, the idea of drawing on the Spirit's power, not through your mind, but through your stomach, sounds absurd. Few followers of Jesus regularly fast anymore. He also points out that, for hundreds of years, it was a common practice within the church that Christians would fast twice a week. Wednesdays and Fridays, they would fast. I was listening to the, the life story of George Whitfield. in the period of the Enlightenment, 1700s, together with the Wesleyan brothers, John and Charles Wesley. That was a common thing for them to fast and pray twice a week. But not as, again, a way of wanting to get God's approval, but it is because of God's approval. They were like, I want more of this. I want more of you, Jesus. I want more of the Spirit. In actual fact, the church used to, pre the Reformation, in the period of Lent, have a fast that was very similar to Ramadan. That for 40 days, for 40 days, before celebrating the Passover, they would fast for 40 days, every day, from sunrise to sunset. Now, an important thing that I want to highlight here is that fasting is not what we have made it out to be in the church today. I've done this before that I say, okay, I'm fasting off of social media. I'm fasting off of chocolates or bread. That is... That's not fasting. It can be helpful. It's it's abstaining from something that's maybe got a stronghold in your life. But fasting literally means to go without food. Because your body is not separated from your soul. The body is whole. It is body, mind, and soul. And so our flesh is very closely connected to our soul or our spirit. And so... We need to understand that the body is not evil, but just like your soul, our bodies have become corrupt as a result of sin. And so fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally against this fight of this corruption. That is what fasting is. It is about turning your body into an ally so that it does not lead you to struggle in your relationship with God and to Be a giver of love instead of a taker. And so that is the first spiritual discipline I want to encourage us as a church to really press into in order to flow in the love and live in the love that God has given us to give away. And the second one I want to share this morning is then confession of sin. Again, in in that book, Live No Lies, Comer writes in his book that for us as Westerners in the Protestant stream of the church, this is perhaps the second most neglected of the practices of Jesus. Similar to fasting, confession was abused by the Catholic church in the late Middle Ages and even in still parts of the world today. And it was contorted into a private therapeutic thing between you and the priest not in community, with a screen to shield your identity and essentially functioned as a get-out-of-jail-free card for the penitent. In its worst form, it was a means of spiritual abuse or for funding a corrupt clergy. So we lost a heritage there. We lost something in the church. What's left of the practice in the Protestant church is usually when we have communion, And how do we do it? We say, okay, examine yourself, which is very good. Confess your sins, which is very good. But we are doing that in our minds in private. And it is actually only when we expose our sin and bring it into the light and put flesh on Jesus. If I confess it to a fellow brother and a sister And to the body, remember we are the body of Christ. I need Jesus in the flesh. So it's about seeing the body of Christ with me who will walk with me in the struggle that I have, in the sin that I have. So it's in a loving community. It's only then that I truly experience love and truly experience freedom. James 5 verse 16 says this, Confess your sins to each other. Pray to each other so that you, or for each other rather, so that you may be healed. To conclude here this morning. In order to truly experience God's true redemptive love that he has freely given us in Jesus Christ by dying for our sins, we have to become givers. We have to be givers. And the way that you do that is to live, not to perform again or to try and attain God's grace or favor. He has already shown it to you. He's already given you his grace and his love through Jesus. But rather, it is to give your whole self away as a living sacrifice to God. Give yourself away to Jesus because of his love and approval on your life already. Two ways you can do that to help you spread fasting and confession, and and I want to say that first and foremost, primarily being in the word of God, being in his truth. Without the word, fasting will just be a new diet or a form to lose weight, make yourself healthy in some kind of new way. So you have to give yourself a way to Jesus. And the way that that looks like is to give yourself way to a loving community such as we have here. Church, if we are serious about seeing God transform not only our lives, but the, the lives of so many people in Squamish, in Canada, in the world, then I believe the time has come for the church to rise up and actually walk in true freedom, which is true love. I want to invite you in this coming week, (coughs) choose one day this week to fast. And in that day, when you are hungry and your stomach growls and your flesh says to yourself, self, run, get a sandwich, pray. And thank God. Pray and say, Jesus, I want you more than the food. Come and do in me what you want to do. Choose one day this week and prepare yourself and come and join us this coming Sunday. March 13th, 7 p.m. We have a time of worship and prayer. And it's mostly focused firstly on hearing God's voice. Listening and waiting on him. That is my invitation to us. But it's not only just for this week. Listen, you have an invitation today. We can practice this today already. So as the worship band comes to the front. Let's listen to God's conviction on our lives. If you feel. Some kind of shame. That's not of God. It's not of God. If you feel some kind of like well I I'm just not good enough. No, it's not about being good enough. You are good enough. God has already done it for you on the cross. He loved you and died for your sins. But there is a place where we need to recognize the spirit's conviction. And so listen for his conviction. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. And after that, there is opportunity for prayer and ministry to happen. If you have things you need to deal with, sin in your life, pray with a fellow brother or sister. Get into community. Join a community group. That's why community groups are so powerful in this walk, because it's in a loving, trusting community. Let us bow our heads in prayer.